This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Let's focus in on not international politics for a moment, but certainly provincial politics, certainly the province of Ontario, and something that is not new. The pandemic has certainly taken a brighter light and has shone that light directly at long-term care, but issues in long-term care, not new. We've been talking about this for a long time. Reporters have been uncovering things for a long time, warning of concerns for a long time. And yet earlier this week, we had Ontario Premier Doug Ford describing long-term care in the province as, quote, hunky-dory at the moment. And we have... The Minister for Long-Term Care, Dr. Marilee Fullerton, not necessarily coming out and saying, hey, we've really got to do something here. She contends that there is not one long-term care home in the province that has a staffing crisis. So earlier today, maybe after those thoughts, we'll see. Earlier today, some organizations, some individuals, some families of people associated with long-term care got together. How many? Three, four, five? Try a hundred. One hundred organizations, individuals, and family members associated with long-term care got together in a news conference that reacted to the hunky-dory comment, that reacted to the way that Dr. Marilee Fullerton has been dealing with this particular portfolio. And joining us right now is Peter Bergmanis, from the Ontario Health Coalition. Peter, thanks so much for being here. Thank you again, Mike. It's a pleasure. You and I have talked about a lot of things, and most of them do not involve any ideas on how to necessarily fix this. Maybe we can get to something that centers on that in a moment, but let's talk about how this came together and why. Where did this all begin to organize a number of people, a hundred people and organizations, to discuss this in one place at one time? Well, I can tell you as being one of the members on that uh, conference uh, call, it was uh, very heart-rendering and emotional to hear the testimony of families and care providers whose lives have been just shattered by the COVID-19 epidemic. And uh, honestly, the truth of... um, the situation is is that the government is completely burying its head in the sand, pretending like there is no crisis when we've been yelling and screaming since the outset that we need more staff absolutely immediately. And it's already beyond too late now. Stats are growing every day and without fear of contradiction. The uh, London situation is worse than it was in the first wave. And we now are looking at tracking numbers, not just London alone, but throughout the province of like one resident in a facility, a long-term care facility, dies every hour. That is completely unacceptable. And uh, the government's failure to act on this staffing is right at the root of it. You mentioned London. I mean, we can look at some statements made by Dr. Joyce Locke, who's the medical officer of health with Southwest Public Health, talking about Maple Manor, which has an outbreak. But she was quick to add, this home is not an island. Outbreaks like this reflect what is happening across our region. And we hear more and more about this. 
why then do we hear a different story from the government? That's a very good question and one that we should be directing at every conservative MPP in the province. We have been demanding to have them listen to our litany of uh, complaints and our solutions, not the least of which, of course, is the immediate action to recruit and retain 10 to 20,000 PSWs, but also that if hospitals are overwhelmed, and our own two hospitals here are dealing with COVID outbreaks as well, that therefore military intervention should be involved. It's not our favorite solution, but it is absolutely necessary because it's gone too long. Now what? We, we, we're not even getting the government to agree to bring in the military. And the military came in, and if we want to call it the first wave. Exactly. So what's the hang-up here? We're sitting on uh, some $12 billion in uh, resources transferred to the province from the federal government, and yet the conservative government here completely ignores the ability they have. They could put in inspectors in any one of these homes in outbreak. They refuse to even find the ones that have been negligent. They are completely, seemingly incompetent in how they're dealing with this. We're talking with Peter Bergmanis from the Ontario Health Coalition after 100 organizations, individuals, family members, all with a connection to long-term care, held a news conference this morning that reacted to some of the things that have either been said, done, or not done by the Ontario government with regard to long-term care. Peter, you mentioned the word solution. I don't know that there's a a full-fledged solution, but that was something that was discussed this morning. Obviously, bringing in the Army, bringing in as many new workers would be great, but what was discussed in using the word solution? That was part of the immediate action that needs to take place. And so uh, we know that the COVID vaccine will not address the actual solutions that we need. And unfortunately, I believe the government believes that they're, they're holding on for dear life that somehow COVID vaccination will save the day. But the truth of the matter is without staff in those facilities, there is no care. And hence, you can't implement any of the solutions. So that was our number one priority is that as in Quebec, they modeled a, a solution. They started right off the hop back in the spring they had recruited 10,000 new staff and paid for them. This was fully supported by the government. Our government, on the other hand, has done nothing but do piecemeal endeavors, does not enforce its own regulations against these bad actors, in fact, inhibits our ability to even sue the bad actors, and then says, well, we're just going to let it ride out. Hopefully, we'll get the vaccine. And that's kind of where we have sat with the Ontario government on this issue for a while. Peter, this is obviously a big statement. What do you hope comes from it? Well, they've been very tone deaf to date. They haven't taken accountability in Queen's Park for any of the inaction that they've done. They need to get on comprehensive inspections again. They need to start instituting real meaningful penalties to bad actors in the homes 
systemic response, accountability, need to enforce infection and control protocols, and there has to be consequences for those who don't. Immediate recruitment and retention of staff should have happened yesterday. We are not there. In that absence, we need the military intervention. They're the ones trained to deal with this situation immediately, but going forward, keep pushing for more staff. We have no hope of turning this around without it. Well, Peter, we really appreciate your attention to this. It's been there all along, and thanks so much for describing what took place this morning. And thank you again, Mike. That is Peter Bergmanis from the Ontario Health Coalition. So what happens now? Well, as Peter says, this this is one of those things that has been serious from the outset. Why isn't more being done? We've got more people who are stating what was stated this morning, who are seemingly concerned about this than we would normally have. And yet, what are we seeing? We're still seeing outbreaks that are documented. As we just mentioned, Dr. Joyce Locke from Southwest Public Health looked at that being an outbreak at Maple Manor being indicative of what's happening across their region. And when you look at the impact on long-term care, what do we do? We have to look to the government to do something. Right now, we're still waiting because, according to the Premier earlier this week on Tuesday, things are hunky-dory, and Dr. Marilee Fullerton steps to the microphone every once in a while but does not step to the microphone and say, okay, we've got to do this and we've got to do it now. If we, again, go back to those early stages of the pandemic, what was one of the first things that we knew? We knew we didn't have enough personal protective equipment. We knew that doctors, nurses, custodial staff, they were all going to need this. And we didn't even know who else might need it. And they needed it yesterday. So whether it was masks or gloves or goggles or gowns or you name it. And right then, there was... Something that has now called itself Canada's Advanced Manufacturing Supercluster. That's a great name, especially when we're battling something like a pandemic. Next Generation Manufacturing Canada. They got together and they created a competition. And it ran last summer. And what it did was it said to companies, what can you do to build made-in-Canada, sustainable, cost-competitive products? PPE, for instance, that can be used to fight COVID-19 and then can be used even beyond this pandemic. And you had so many different companies get involved with this. And right now, Next Generation Manufacturing Canada has announced over $27 million in funding for winners in what it laid out as its strategic supply challenge. And months ago, we had an opportunity to talk with Lena Bowden as this all began. And Lena is partner and CFO with Carmina de Young Fashion Design Incorporated here in London. And we get a chance to visit with Lena again. Lena, welcome back to London Live. How are you? I'm great, Mike. Thanks for the opportunity to talk today. Well, we always like to follow up on certain things, and maybe let's rewind time, because you immediately saw a need and saw, 
well, you know, we might be able to do something here. What was that thing that you saw you might be able to do? Okay, so our company, uh, Carmina de Young, was manufacturing and uh, selling women's fashion. And so Carmina, the founder and owner of Carmina de Young, is a designer. And so we were making women's fashion. And when the pandemic hit, uh, we realized that we weren't going to be able to continue that business for the coming weeks as the pandemic hit. And then um, if you remember, Mike Mona Deslop, who was uh, also joined our company at the time, she was encouraging us to look at uh, making PPE. So we did that. We we made the pivot. We started making PPE. And uh, very quickly, within a matter of weeks, we found ourselves uh, uh, getting a subcontract to make gowns for Health Canada. And we continued to progress and uh, make gowns for both reusable and disposable gowns for people in our region, as well as this contract that we had with Health Canada. So we shifted, but we, uh, as a, at the core, our company is very focused on sustainability. So making disposable gowns was a, you know, a bit of a problem for us because we wanted to kind of find a solution for these gowns and other PPE that was going to the landfill. And so we did apply to NGEN, uh, which was this grant opportunity, along with a uh, company out of Brantford called Optima Color and another company called Viz Medical. And together we, uh, we developed this uh, full circle value chain that would see recycled PPE made into textile and then made into gowns. So that's where we're at today, and we were successful in getting this grant, which we're super excited about. You make it sound so easy, Lena. How <laughs> difficult was this, actually, if you look back and think about all the steps and stages you went through? Yeah, well, making the gowns, uh, you know, for our, uh, for our production operation was actually probably the easy part because we are a garment manufacturer and had some experience at making garments. So the production side of things came together and, uh, you know, we just kept making that more and more efficient as the months went on. Um, but certainly the application to the engine was very competitive and it required a, a, you know, a fairly extensive grant opportunity and some back and forth with engine. But uh, we were very pleasantly surprised when we were one of the companies, uh, one of the projects that was awarded. And now, well, we have an announcement that comes from this particular competition, and that announcement is over $27 million in funding for winners in the Strategic Supply Challenge. Does this assist you going forward to continue doing this, or do you envision going back to what you were originally doing? How do you see the future playing out? Well, I think we, we kind of started to chart the future a few months ago uh, to make this a more of a permanent uh, aspect of our business. And in fact, we are not producing women's fashion at, the, at this time. We might come back to that at one point. But this is, uh, this is a, a business that's filling a need, and uh, you know, I always feel business should fill needs that are there, and so here we are making PPE. And you know, as you mentioned in your introduction, you know, Canada identified fairly early in the pandemic that we just don't have people manufacturing PPE. And so the supply is, was a real issue. So when, um, when things got tough, trying to import um, PPE was, was a real challenge for Canada, and they found really quickly they needed to uh, solicit some manufacturers to uh, start making gowns and masks and other PPE that was required. So, you know, the supply chain is a challenge. Not only the, even when we were starting to make gowns, we had a really hard time finding fabric because that fabric had to come from 
India or China. And so this idea that we have where we can actually make textile here in Canada, it's a bit of a, a reversion to, you know, making things in Canada. We can make things in Canada, and so we want to be able to prove that. Lena Bowden, partner and CFO in Carmina de Young Fashion Design Incorporated. And we always do hear that, that, well, you know, you, you can't do it here because it'll be too expensive or because people are not participating in that supply line in the same way that you need them to be. So how has that supply line changed from the time when you looked around and said, well, we do have some gaps, we do have to look outside our borders, to what you see now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think uh, Health Canada has been buying our gowns. We uh, They had contracted, uh, you know, reached out to Canada and said, we need 138 million gowns made. And so a lot of manufacturers, you heard of Canada Goose and Stanfield were the big ones. They pivoted and right away started making gowns. And so we did alongside of some of these other companies. So and there is a premium price to be paid for things made in Canada because our, our labor, you know, is more expensive and we want to make, you know, we want to create jobs that uh, earn a living wage for people. So I think that's a shift and, you know, the, the pricing is definitely something that we have to keep our eye on. So as we become more and more efficient, we can certainly offer competitive pricing. But this model that we are introduced that uh, is, the, is funded by Engine is a, a full circular value chain where we are going to see gowns and other PPE recycled from hospitals uh, sent to this plant in Brantford that's going to convert or reprocess um, that recycled raw material into pellets. And then those pellets will be brought to London, Ontario to be making this textile. Hopefully by the summer we'll have our, our textile plant, um, you know, launching. So, and then the textile will then be used as a raw material. So, you know, it was just really starting with a blank sheet of paper and saying, how can we get creative to first create a business that thinks about the environment and also thinks about people, not just profit? And that's kind of been our mantra coming into young all along. Hey, that's, that is just a fantastic part of all of this. The idea that we have so much during the pandemic that must be disposed of, because if you have a healthcare worker who walks in to see a patient, they come out, that gown is gone. Those gloves are gone. That mask, you know, you, you can't keep using this stuff over and over again because of the risk of spreading the virus. The idea that you can still take those things and instead of them finding their way to a landfill, you're finding a way to turn them back into materials that then, do they become what they were? Do they, do, is it that they get broken down and then the textile plant in London will hopefully one day build them back up? Yeah, yeah, there's, there's certainly uh, many phases to our project. So the initial phase will be collecting something called blue wrap. So it's a sterilized um, spun bond fabric that's used in surgery rooms. So there's... Um, you know, there's probably a million uh, pounds of that to be collected uh, each month and uh, across across Ontario. So there's an opportunity to start with sort of the low-hanging fruit, the type of um, material that will be easily converted into pellets. And then as we progress, we're going to be adding and adding more things to be able to also collect different types of PPE to be able to bring those those items back. So it's definitely, you know, it's a lot more complicated than I'm making it sound off the bat, but uh, it can be done, and, there, you know, it's going to take several steps before we get there. But we've, uh, we've got now the funding to buy all the equipment that we need, which is the reprocessing plant in Brantford, which is going to be held by a company called Lifecycle Revive and operated by Optima Color. 
and uh, then uh, the textile plant will be uh, under the name of Lifecycle Health. So we are using that Lifecycle brand as our, um, you know, basically the story to be able to create this chain that we want to create. And over time, we hope we can achieve a full a full circle. Outstanding. Lena Bowden joining us, partner and CFO with Carmina de Young Fashion Design Incorporated. So will this essentially be an expansion? Could we even see jobs created out of this? Absolutely. And I think we've already created a lot of jobs. We we started at Carmina de Young with a very small team. When this pandemic hit, we were five people on our team. And uh, we slowly progressed from that five to, I think, if I look today, it's probably 50 people on the payroll right now. And we're in the middle of a, a fairly significant hiring uh, to expand our operation here in the gown making. So it continues, and uh, you know our plans are to continue to con- kind of grow and grow that, so that when we are producing this textile by the end of the year, that we'll actually be able to produce gowns from all this textile that we're going to be creating. And so we are, yeah, we're going to be looking to create jobs. So it's pretty exciting. It's not very often that in a pandemic somebody gets lemons and they don't stay lemons. Uh, you've taken some lemons, you've turned them into a whole lot of lemonade and and a whole lot more lemonade to come, it sounds like. Lena, thanks so much for outlining what has taken place. Thank you for doing what you did. And this is just a story that uh, we needed on a Friday. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you, Mike. Have yourself a great weekend and please keep safe and please keep up the good work. All right. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. That's Lena Bowden, partner and CFO with Carmina de Young Fashion. Let's talk some education. Joining us is the Director of Education for the London and District Catholic School Board, Linda Stott. Linda, thank you so much for being here. Hi, Mike. Right now, you're probably trying just about anything to get these curriculums delivered. Can you tell us what it's been like over the last couple of weeks? Has it been any easier because this kind of thing has been done before? Uh, Yeah, very much so. Uh, When we had to switch all of our students, both elementary and secondary, in January, um, we had... uh, far better spot to be in than when we were, of course, last April. So it's still hard on everybody, and we, you know, we really feel for the, uh, for the families, uh, especially when you have more than um, one child at home and you're trying to support all of them. But we've been um, very grateful for their support, and our teachers are um, right now, most of them, because of the stay-at-home order, are also at home, so they're navigating um, the learning. Overall, um, it's going well. We've learned a lot, and, um, you know, we were hopeful that we might have been one of those areas that were uh, permitted to go back uh, as of Monday. Um, But what everybody's doing is looking at the numbers and just they're just needing to come back down uh, some more before we can get the go-ahead. So what we know now is that the earliest um, that we could go back is the 11th, and that um, coincides with the the end of the stay-at-home order. So we're we're hoping that by the 11th that our our students will go back, and that will also signal that the COVID numbers uh, in our area will have decreased. 
Hey, we can only hope. We've been asked a couple of times about a either a sweet spot or a definitive number. Are you hearing anything where you could say, hey, if cases or case counts are this in Middlesex, London, or in Elgin, Middlesex, London, or wherever they happen to make the area, then, yeah, we're good. We're good to go. Have you heard a number like that? No. Um, no, we haven't. So the first that we even heard is as to who was going back was on um, was on Wednesday evening and, and of course we were disappointed that we weren't there. What is encouraging for us is that uh, since um, two weeks after the the new year, that was the the time that everybody was worried about. But after that, the numbers in fact um, have been coming down uh, quite a bit uh, in both Middlesex, London, and Southwest. So we're we're under a hundred, and we're starting to inch more even to the fifties. So I, I don't have any inside information, but I would think that if we could consistently get under even fifty, that that would be um, a lot more promising. Um, so I don't have a number, but if it continues to go down as it is, then. Um, I, I think we're optimistic, and I know that it's been a huge sacrifice for everybody. But do we know that for sure no going back before the 11th? Has that been spelled out to you by the government? Yeah, we just got confirmation that the rest of the boards uh, who are still in remote learning is that the earliest uh, that we could go back is the 11th, and then we're hoping that it would be perhaps later that week of um, that first week in February, perhaps the 4th or 5th that we hear. So I don't even know for certain. Um, but um, And it is uh, midweek. So I think um, they'll try to let us know as soon as possible uh, just to support the, um, the families uh, and give them as much lead time as possible. And that's something the families have certainly wanted to have is as much lead time as possible. We're talking with Linda Stott, who is the Director of Education for the London and District Catholic School Board. We have heard that it's it's not that boards are hearing this on a Sunday afternoon and saying, oh, hey, it's, uh, it's Wednesday, might, might as well get around to saying this. You're not getting much information either, are you? No, we're basically getting at the same time as the media uh, is. And so when the, the minister makes an announcement, uh, we're all basically getting it at the same time. We, we're not receiving it in advance of a public announcement. If we look at some of what you're dealing with right now with regard to, let's say, elementary school, can you take us through a, a day that an elementary student would have and, and how many hours they are to spend online in class? Are there an hour or minute set out for that? So um, it, it, the, the day varies um, with the, um, whether we're talking primary, junior, or senior in elementary. And we know that for the primary students, uh, for them to be on live with the teacher, that they need, uh, they need the support of a, um, of a parent or a guardian. So the, the school day is still, um, let's say, 9 to 3, um, what the uh, parents are given is the time that they're expected uh, to be on live with the, um, with the teacher. And 
what we've been giving parents is some flexibility. So the teacher may have different groups on at different times because, as you can imagine, if you only have, you know, perhaps one laptop and you have three students, it's not going to quite work that all of the uh, household is going to be able to be on at the same time. So we've really tried the teachers with the parents to work out that schedule and give them some flexibility. So much like in a classroom, there's there's times that the teacher is doing direct teaching, and then there's times that they're doing uh, some work related to that. And But during the day, even when the students are working on their own, uh, the teacher is available uh, to support them and, and answer any questions. We're talking with Linda Stott, who is the Director of Education for the London and District Catholic School Board. How about at the high school level? What sorts of things are, are we dealing with right now that may present as, as either challenges or just things that have to be done? Uh, that one for remote learning is a little bit easier, uh, obviously, because of the, the age of the students. And so right now um, we're in an octomester, um, which previous, uh, no one even knew what that would be. So our students are only uh, taking one course at a time. And so right now we are presently uh, finishing up uh, this past midterm of our fourth octomester. So our teachers are um, getting more experienced um, with this model and so are our students. And obviously you can have more time on screen um, with those students and the resources available uh, to our secondary, um, there's excellent resources. So it's it's a little bit easier, and um, but and we're and we're doing it, and it's and it's working well. And the uh, it's just it's a it's a new way of of operating. Linda, as a final point, we have a number of concerns over the mental health of students and what it may mean going forward. Is that something that comes up in conversations right now, or is that something that may come up in months, in in years from now to a greater extent? No, absolutely. And our teachers are are working with the families, and so is is board staff. And I would say that, um, you know, at one time it would have been student achievement followed by mental well-being, and right now, its mental well-being um, is first, and that is that is everybody's concern. So we know that it's just not the same way of interacting. Um, but the teachers and our support staff are following up uh, with families uh, in any other uh, ways that we can. But it is it is top of mind, and we know that the the stress from this is just showing itself in different ways. And uh, it is a concern, and our, um, we have more supports available than ever uh, for our staff and students. If someone is concerned about their own child or maybe just looking to find out more about those supports, what's the best way to do that? Uh, just start with their, uh, with their classroom teacher um, or their principal, and we can then, uh, we can then readily assist. Linda, thank you so much for the update, and please keep safe. Okay, thanks so much, Mike. That's Linda Stott, Director of Education for the London and District Catholic School Board. So they're not getting 
up to the second information any other time than the rest of us are. And it's simply they get it, they convey it, and is it an ideal situation? No. Is it the situation that we're in? Yes. Are we expected to be out of this particular situation before February 11th? It appears the answer to that is no. And so that has created some big challenges for families and for students and for learning. And, you know, that the learning element always has more than just the school aspect. It, it has that family and it has that student interaction and, and role. And that's only going to be more important going forward, isn't it? You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 